I never valued anything other than getting high or having a good time. And it was the first time I ever valued actually being able to have significance in this world besides just having fun. Um, I wanted people to respect me. I wanted people to actually, you know, care about what I did that day because I had lost all respect. You know, my family didn't want me anymore. The system was trying to put me into jail. I'd been kicked out of every school. So I had nowhere else to stand other than where my two feet were at that moment. And if I continued in that position, I would probably have shackles around my feet. So I knew that I had to take control and I knew that if I did take control, that I actually got to have full control. I got to own that moment. This is the Limitless Athlete Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, founder of Mindset Rx and your host. And I believe no matter how dire the situation you find yourself in, you are always in the position to create massive change in your life by taking full ownership and stopping playing the victim. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can. There is no past in the future. There's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through that, like, come at me. Changing how I saw myself, like, as a man, not just as, as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay. That's part of the deal. It's how I respond to it. Today on the Limitless Athlete Podcast, you will be listening to a conversation between Hunter McIntyre and myself. Hunter is a multi-sport athlete who has competed in the in obstacle course racing, been to the CrossFit Games, and he holds the world record for the workout Murph and much more. Before I give you your quick lesson introduction to today, there's a quick house piece, uh, housekeeping piece to contend with, and that is that the MindTech training camp is now open. When you listen to this, there'll be, well, at the moment, there's just 15 spaces left. I'm guessing that's going to be closer to five at the time um, when you actually listen to this. So if you're ready to invest in your training in terms of overcoming perfectionism, self-doubt, and you're ready to commit 100% to your potential, the mindset training camp is just open. You need to head to Instagram to find that. So in this conversation, Hunter discusses his growth from, well, drug and alcohol abuse and a certain nihilism to one of the fittest athletes undoubtedly on earth. The turning point is when he commits himself to this deeper purpose and discards a self-centered and victim-based mentality. Look, I've I've been there. Like we've I think we've all been there where we start blaming the outside world. And when it was me focusing on this victim mentality, if you ask me, I'd say, no, no, I'm not a victim mentality. I don't have a victim mentality. But looking back, I really did play the victim. And it was this case of internal versus external locus of control an internal locus of control is when i focus on my actions and my behaviors and i really truly believe when you have an internal locus of control what you believe there is that my actions have value and dictate what happens to me if you have an external locus of control this is when you believe that the world is just happening to you it's happening against you and you have no say over it but when we accept ownership of the process, that's when things start to change. I'm not saying responsibility because that suggests that we control the situation. I'm saying ownership because that means we take possession. It's mine. It's mine to look after. And that really, it walks, that, that terminology, it helps you walk that fine line between the hyper-masculine archetype of just do it if you're not hurting, you're not doing it right, that kind of mentality. And the hyper-archetypical feminine idea of all you need to do is love yourself. We need to find that middle ground. And that middle ground is shared by both portions of that hyper, or the masculine and the feminine, because it's taking ownership of yourself and your life. So enjoy this episode. And alongside it, we're going to be releasing the debrief where Rachel and I teach you how to apply the lessons inside this interview to your training and your wider life. And this is going to be released later this week. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. Now I'm going to bring you the wonderful Hunter McIntyre. Welcome to the show, Hunter. Um, real pleasure to be speaking to you. Well, thank you for having me on. Sorry, that was the most awkward pause over my behalf. Um, <laughs> we'll, just, we'll crack straight on. Um, can you tell me about the heartbeat of the mountain? 
the heartbeat of the mountain. Um, I don't know what you mean by that. Uh, um, Keith told me to. Oh, the bowl uh, of the mountain. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the bowl of the mountain. Oh, yeah. That's a book that I've been working on for a long time. Um, God, I just told the story a couple of days ago. Uh, you know, I'll try to abbreviate it, but basically I've been working on a book because uh, a moment in life, my life changed everything for me. I was kind of on a bad path in the way that I had gone to rehab. I was in currently in a period of one year court mandated rehab, been arrested a bunch of times, was on my way to jail. And they had given me this window of time to kind of correct my life. And I had been kicked out of three rehabs at this point already uh, through continued substance abuse and just a sassy attitude towards life. And um, I was lucky enough to get a job as a logger because I needed something that was kind of physically and mentally stimulating enough to get my young mind and wild mind to kind of calm down. And I sucked at it. I was not a great logger. I was a young, pretty weak guy. I was probably about 5'10", 5'11", 160 pounds. Not that that's the smallest person on earth, but I actually had a coworker who was actually much smaller than me, but these men were made of piss and vinegar and muscle. They were just fucking, they were jacked, jacked, tough guys who'd lived in their mount, the mountains for decades. And I had grown up in Connecticut, which is basically, you know, kind of like the rolling hills of somewhere you live in the UK, not like, compared to where I was now working, like BC, where you used to ski. And I basically um, was sat down by my boss one day and he basically told me, you know, what our job meant. And he says, there's only man and machine on this mountain. And, you know, obviously man can never match machine, but there's a man that is going to be controlling the pace of the whole mountain because there's the guys who chop down the trees, the guys that hook the trees, the guys that release the trees, the truck drivers, the crane drivers. And there's always going to be one guy who is beating the drum that everybody else has to follow the pace of. And if one guy goes slow, then everybody goes slow because if I'm chopping down trees slow, then you can't pick them up and that guy can't release them. And this guy can't drive them down the mountain in the truck. So if you fuck up, we lose, we lose wood. And if we lose wood, we lose contracts. And if we lose contracts, we lose jobs. And it was the first time anybody had ever explained hard work to me and why we all kind of coexisted in this position and how hard work is on a team really created success for everybody. But then there was that one person that was the bull of the mountain who kind of ran the show and everybody else had to follow him because he was so powerful and so strong and so prepared that he ran the day and everyone else beat to his, you know, followed the beat of his drum. And from that point on, I transformed as a human being. I actually transformed physically and mentally. I, I shot up to six foot two, 215 pounds, like almost 60 pounds in a couple months. And I transformed. And from that point on, I took that physical mindset into all of my work, whether it be competition, professional pursuits. Um, and it's given me more accolades than I could ever imagine. And I think back on that day every single day. Um, to remind myself why we work hard and how we are where we are today, rather than probably being jailed up in the system somewhere. What changed about your mentality in that point? Like, obviously, before you were one way, after that conversation, you began to change another way. Like, how would you describe that change? Well, at the time, I was doing a lot of drugs and drinking and chasing girls and stuff. And, you know, there was no reason for me not to. Like, you know, these people in rehab and AA were like, hey, Hunter, you got to stop doing drugs. And I was like, why? They're like, they're bad for you. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure I'm having the time of my life getting high. So you can't fully explain why they're bad for me and why I should focus on anything else. I never valued anything other than getting high or having a good time. And it was the first time I ever valued actually being able to have significance in this world besides just having fun. Um, I wanted people to respect me. I wanted people to actually, you know, care about what I did that day because I had lost all respect. You know, my family didn't want me anymore. The system was trying to put me into jail. I'd been kicked out of every school. So I had nowhere else to stand other than where my two feet were at that moment. And if I continued in that position, I would probably have shackles around my feet. So I knew that I had to take control and I knew that if I did take control, that I actually got to have full control. I got to own that moment. When I'm the champion of an event, there's nothing like, you know, everybody looks to me. Not that I need that, but at the same time, I lead the way. 
and I'm the forefront of the, you know, of the sport and I don't ever have to chase anybody else or I kind of get to decide if I show up to a race. Now it's the most important race of the year because the champion's there and you get to own that sport and own that moment. You know, I think Matt Frazier went to a competition in CrossFit in the UK a couple of years ago, and it was kind of like an unknown sanctional event. And he showed up and became like the biggest sanctional event of the year. And by my mindset, I knew that if I took control of my sports, that anytime I stepped onto the playing field that, you know, I already owned that moment and I, it was my choice to lose it, but at the same time, it was, it was mine. And I owned it at that time until I had lost it. So I appreciated that. I wanted to ha- own it and have significance in my, in my sport and my life again, because I had ta- had everything taken away from me. So if that makes sense to you, I went from basically the lowest man on the totem pole on the mountain and basically the most important guy in the mountain, because I was the fastest and strongest dude there. Well, it seems to me you took some responsibility on your shoulders. It's like ownership. Like you had a purpose that was greater than immediate hedonism. And it was like, okay, this is something bigger than myself. I see my place that I'm kind of, I'm not just, it's not just about me. It's about like a a greater system. Yeah. I did appreciate my boss and the people that worked around me. I didn't want that to sound like a selfish story. Like I only cared about myself on the mountain. I just didn't know how I existed amongst them until that time. And I also didn't understand the significance of like why it's important to get first place um, through fifth place. Like I like doing cross country and wrestling when I was younger, but if I lost a tournament, I didn't care. And Mm -hmm. if I went to school and I didn't get an A on a paper, I didn't care. Um, And then I finally understood the value of that, you know, being number one. uh, And, you know, I've chased it ever since. Okay, so here's something that's interesting. In AA and recovery programs, you're told things like, okay, you've got to have a purpose bigger than yourself. You've got to have, like, um, you've got to see your place in, in wide society. Why does that suddenly become kind of, why, why did you listen to your boss and, and not everyone else who was saying it? <laughs> I respected my boss. I think a big part of, like, actually hearing somebody is respecting them. There's a lot of people in this world Mm -hmm. that give me advice. And if I don't respect them, I don't really hear them. My boss was a big barrel chested redheaded man who chopped down trees that were 200 feet tall. And he was only six feet tall. And he made those 200 feet tall, uh, two foot tall trees seem smaller than him when he went up against them. I never kind of seen anything that powerful. He worked harder than anybody on the mountain. And I think as a young man, you know, you're kind of jockeying for, for position. It takes a while to find significance and, you know, your, your place in the world. Um, you know, however that may be, especially for me, at least I was, I was raised in a house with four boys. My dad was a tough guy. All my brothers were pretty tough. Um, so there's that pecking order and, you know, you don't have to be a big masculine man to have my respect, you know, my stepmother, my mother, um, couple of women that I bumped into along the way that are so intelligent and so well posed that I immediately want to stop and listen to them. My grandmother also, she was a rock star. Um, so as I'm saying, it doesn't have anything to do with just masculinity, but for me at that time, masculinity was a big part of, you know, being able to understand who I am at that position in life. Yeah. It seems like it's, um, something around impact as well. Like that, that they definitely had like a, an intentionality in someone's actions and and a result that they're getting and a, and a display of probably power too like and that's maybe the the masculine archetype as opposed to the sexuality of masculine yeah well i'll tell you it's interesting when i was going through that rehab thing um like my first rehab that i went to you know uh, the coaches just kind of seemed like they were walking through life and this was just a job that they were stopping off at and i could tell the energy of it the second rehab that I went to, most of the counselors had just graduated college and didn't want to take a real full-time job. So they were like, hey, I've got this opportunity to go live in the woods with kids and tell them not to do drugs. And I was like, I could read it on their faces. I was like, you guys fucking probably smoke pot as soon as you get out of here. So I don't believe a thing you have to say. But once I finally met somebody who were really authentic um like a really authentic person who really did care about what was going on in their life and the place that they were in. I could see that kind of significance behind their woods and their words. And I I really did understand it and resonated with me. So it is a big part of 
who you surround yourself with, um, what kind of impact that they will make. You know, I try right now to surround myself because it's so hard, like, especially as I get older to compete at a very high level, I don't allow people around me at all that are weak-minded or just like kind of blah about their day. And not that I, I keep people away or, you know, treat people rudely who don't have that kind of composure, but it is a big part of who I surround myself with today. Yeah. Some people get pissed with that kind of mentality, but you're such like in your life. And I mean, that as everyone listening to the show as well, like in your life, you are the most important asset you have and you're the only thing you can change. Why would you spend time with any kind of resource that filters down your experience of life? You want to build yourself and put yourself in the best place possible, even if your intention is to help other people. Yeah. Especially so. What was, what are your prominent memories of, of childhood? Freedom. I had a lot of freedom. I had a really good family in the way that they were, they let me do whatever the heck I want in the way that I was just outside all the time. We'd travel three to four towns over some days. I'm talking about probably covering 30, 40, 50 miles a day on bike. Just not like it was a workout. It was just the only transportation that we had. Some days we'd have to run a half marathon and I didn't even know what a half marathon was at the time. Hmm. Uh, climbing trees, building tree forts, lifting big rocks. I was just reading this book about, um, I think it's Andre, Andre Dolly or something like that. He's the number one cross-country skier in history. And he was just talking about as a child how he would train unknowingly um, 22 to 25 hours a week. And that's what we did. And hmm. I... I like, you know, climbing probably 20 to 30 trees a day at, at a time, like big ass trees too. That's a full body workout. That's a crazy full body workout. And we put backpacks full of hammers and nails in our backpacks and climb up to the top of the tree and build tree forts. And we'd put all this stuff on our backs and we'd bike through the woods back and forth until we could haul all the stuff out there. And then we'd go play paintball in the woods for five, six hours. It's just like, that's probably some of the more dominant memories I have as being a kid. And it, it makes a lot of sense why I am where I am today. Um, I don't see a lot of people doing that now, to be honest. Uh, and I still try to live that life daily if I can. So I had a very, very fun upbringing in the way that we are, we are given a lot of space to be in the woods and do our own thing. Yeah, there's definitely utility in living like that. I think it gives you so much more than just your physical movement capacity. It's like it's like you said, it's freedom, right? You, you can do what you want. You can move the way you want. You can get outdoors. Yeah, yeah. And I had three older brothers. Um, they're probably the reason why I'm so competitive. Um, you know, we just, the oldest brother is 10 years older than me. So we didn't have a lot of connection when we were younger, but I would follow and see what he would do. And then the next oldest brother is about seven years older than me. And the next one's three years older than me. And there was a pecking order. So obviously my closest brother to me, he and I are still closest and he's very, very successful to this day. You know, my oldest brother is studied law. He's got a law degree. The next one's a neurologist at Cornell medical hospital. And the next one's a hedge fund manager. So you know, not to say that you have to have those jobs, but when you do have those jobs and, you know, I'm sitting down at a table and people are discussing things like studying people's brains and passing the bar test and, um, you know, how much of an increase that they had made that week in the stock market. You're like, whoa, what the hell did I do? Okay. So you've got like your brothers, are what neurologists, lawyers, and hedge fund managers. Yeah. When you're a kid and you're kind of, you're going down that path, eventually they're, they're, they're obviously very like kind of traditionally straight laced jobs, right? They're kind of like white collar jobs. This is traditionally what I do. And then you kind of bucked the trend and went the other way when you're getting, working your way towards rehab. Yeah. What triggered that? And like, how, how did that feel? It didn't really resonate with me at all at the time because I didn't care about anything. I really mm -hmm. didn't care. You know, my brothers were, you know, one of them was in an Ivy League school. Um, one of my brothers, you know, had just probably graduated with uh, law school. And my other brother was working, I think, at a Swiss bank. 
when I was in rehab. Um, and if you think about that, you're like, wow, that's super fucking impressive. That is super impressive. But I didn't, it didn't click with me at all. I didn't care. I was very isolated in my mindset at the time. Now that I'm, I'm older and I put in a lot of work, I can understand the other t- amount of work that people put in and I can really respect them. You know, even if you're a gardener and you work 12 hours a day in the sun, I can really respect that. Um, or if you're a doctor who's doing 24 hour shifts, I can really respect that because I put a lot of hard work in now, but at the time, um, I was in a totally different place mentally. I didn't care, you know, but, uh, man, there's some of the few people that stuck by my side through everything. They didn't really care about any of the trouble that I'd got in or any of the things that, you know, the future that I held or the past that I had lived, they didn't really care. So that was a pretty good situation. None of those guys abandoned me. Yeah. That's what family's for, right? Like that's, that's what it yeah, should be. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So how old were you when you began to experiment with drugs? I will tell you um, funny story. The first time I ever got drunk and it was unintentional was nine years old. And, you know, my, my uncles had brought moonshine over to the house and all the men had stood in a circle in the kitchen and everyone, he started taking pulls of it. And they're like, oh, ooh, uh. and they're freaked out. They're all freaking out. Cause I don't know if you've ever had moonshine, but it's just incredibly strong, you know, gasoline smelling flavored based corn liquor. And everyone got to drink it. Even my brother, who's only two, three years older than me, two and a half years older than me, got to drink it. And he was like nine. So he was like 11 and I was nine. And I waited until like, they were like, you're too young, Hunter. And I was like, oh, fuck you guys. So as soon as everyone left the room, I went into the freezer a little bit later and I came out and drank like half the jar, not knowing what I was doing. So I think it, I don't want this to sound bad about my family, but watching people older than you do stuff inspired me to do it. So if there was like a party at my house and the parents were all drinking booze and I saw somebody put down their wine glass, I would run up and just go, boom, shoot it back, put it down on the table and run away. So I started doing that stuff pretty young and um, probably drug use started coming around maybe 13 or 14 years old. And it was very continuous until probably about 23. And, um, you know, now it's not really part of my life at all. Um, I've done enough of it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sounds like you grew up in kind of quite a hyper-masculine world with um kind of especially if you if you take masculinity as an archetype as opposed to a physical yeah. thing like like a high achiever dominance kind of go out and get it and that was a way to fit in as well like to kind of meet and meet expectations that may be un- unconscious sure I, there was nobody in our house that was not doing great things and yeah. typically not that they're, the women didn't have the capabilities. My stepmother had a very, very big, um, you know, practice as a doctor as well. So, you know, women in our family were doing big things as well. But typically, um, like my mother was staying at home. Uh, my grandmother was staying at home, taking care of the kids. So was my grandmother. And the men, you'd always typically hear about them going out and doing, um, you know, big excursions and whatever their kind of uh, respective, you know, world was. So yeah, I guess the masculine thing is definitely a continuing undertone of it all. So you start kind of experimenting with drugs other than alcohol when you're like 13, 14, right? And then you get sent to court-mandated rehab. What sequence of events led you there? Uh, I had just continued to get arrested over and over and over again, which sucked. For what kind of stuff? Like petty misdemeanor type ah, Just stupid stuff, dude. Like pulling a fire alarm during a big school test here that was like, you know, one of the SAT type tests here ended up being um, two felony charge. Okay. Nothing like, you know, I wasn't like holding like guns to people's heads and, you know, robbing banks. It was all stuff that you and I would laugh about and probably still laugh about to this day. I laugh about it. It was hysterical. I don't, you know, everyone's in the middle of a really hard test. They've been working so hard to study. And I was like, well, so good. So long to that. Boom. Fire alarm pulled. And it's ridiculous. The court system today is so freaking stupid. It's ridiculous. Like any judge that had just half a brain 
could have looked at a lot of these things and been like, you know what, this kid is just rough and tumble. You know, maybe we should find a system to put him in like a logging job or something that's more of like a, I don't know, more of a system to really kind of rehabilitate him mentally rather than fucking lock him up into a cage with a bunch of other beastly animals and have him form his into his adult life like that. Like putting me into jail, putting me into rehab was even worse than putting me anywhere else because I was just in a group with a bunch of like-minded individuals that wanted to do drugs all the time. And I was like, I've never tried that drug. You've inspired me to try it. So it was stupid. I mean, the system for people like me, the system that they were trying to put me into was very dumb. And I fought against it terribly. And I was intelligent enough to be able to look them in the face. And I'd be like, you guys know that this is just a money-making racket for you. And you have no intentions of watching me succeed. You have intentions of keeping this bill going as long as possible. And you know that this system is not really established for people like me, but you have me here anyways, because you have a spot for me. There's a bed for me and you want the money. So that's usually why I got in a lot of trouble while I was in the rehabs, but um, it was silly, man. I mean, like I was rambunctious, but not dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the, the people who are in charge of supposedly helping you had no, no skin in the game of in terms of you succeeding. It's like, if, if however you define success, of course, but like they they actually got more reward the longer you were there and the less quickly you got help. So why subconsciously would they push for that? Yeah. I'll admit the United States is a little bit of a flawed, flawed country. I don't even want to get into the extent of it, but if you just think about it, like looking at countries like Sweden and Norway, if you go to jail there, they'll give you like a whole college education and teach you a trade. And by the time you're out of there, you're like a very functioning member of society here. You become this beast, uh, you know, and you get like, you know, tattoos all over your body and line up with some kind of gang. Uh, it's interesting. I don't know why, um, why it's all arranged the way it is. Hopefully as I gain momentum in this world and I'm able to have a little bit more of an established version of myself that can be more impactful, I'll be able to give back to people. And that's why I really am writing this book, Bowl of the Mountain, to help influence people that are were in my position, or at least give it to people that can read who are surrounding that person so they can have a better understanding of the way a brain may work for people in this position. Yeah, that sounds like it's a deeper purpose to you. Yeah. When, okay, so you, you go through rehab, um, was it three times you said? I ended up going to four of them. Last one succeeded. Four yeah. of them. Okay, four of them. What was different about that fourth one? Well, the fourth one was the first one, but I sat down with a counselor and I basically took control myself. I was like, listen, I'm going to AA meetings four, four or five days a week and meeting up with the rest of these guys that don't plan on getting out of here. I do. So you're going to help me figure this shit out and you're going to give me a job that's so hard, the logging job that I have no physical or mental energy whatsoever to chase down getting into, into trouble. Just, I don't want any opportunity to do it. Why did you, why did you need something so physically hard? What, what was the link there? I'm just not stupid. I mean, like if you pound rocks all day, you're going to be freaking tired. There's no time to drink beer. If you have to go to, if you, your shift ends at six and you have to be at office at like four the next day, there's just not a lot of energy. So I just was like, I'm going to pound rocks or logs. And, you know, you watch cool hand Luke, all those chain gang guys, the bad guys, you know what they did to break their, their bad spirits. They made them work in the hot sun all day long. So I was just like, I'm going to do the same exact thing. And it worked. I don't have, if I wake up like today, I went running for an hour, not as much as I wanted to, but I had to get into this interview and it's more work after this. But I went running for an hour and it kind of just settled me. And I'm going to have this conversation. I'm going to have the next conversation. Then I'm going to go to the gym for two hours. Then I'm going to sit down and do some more work. And then I'm going to be done for the day. And I'm done by like eight or nine. I've got no time to go sit. Like people are like, hey, do you want to go drink? And I was like, I don't have time to go drink. I don't have time to do anything else except for I got to do it all again tomorrow. I celebrate at the end. But once I created that system for myself, it ended up becoming very successful. It seems like you have a really high level of energy naturally. And it's either you can use that or it uses itself in a kind of a hedonistic way. True. True. I'm really good at, uh, you know, putting a dot on the wall or a carrot in front of my face and just chasing it until there's nothing left. Yeah. 
Hey, if you're enjoying this episode, chances are you'll enjoy our free ebook, How to Stop Substandard Self-Critical Plateaus and Unleash Your Potential. It's a step-by-step guide to finding your mojo again and getting back to the athlete you know you can be. It's free. You just have to stick your email address in and download it. To find it, head to mindsetrx.com slash ebook. That's mindsetrxd.com slash ebook. Now let's get on with the show. What was useful about the process of going through, let's let's say through rehab and what wasn't? I mean, I rehabilitated myself. I'm just going to be honest. Um, and why, why did you feel like you need to do it yourself then? It just, it's not a one size fits all situation. And a lot of these, like, you know, a lot of these programs, um, I think just create this succession ladder for you to succeed. And they don't care if you're round, square, triangle, any of that kind of stuff. They're like, well, one size fits all here. And I could tell, as I said, I'm just another I'm just another person going through the system for them. And I knew that they didn't care. Um, obviously, it didn't matter. Like when the, the people that are in the office and working with you rotate every single two weeks, they're just looking at a new set of faces. Whereas you've been sitting there in that same position for weeks, months, now years. Mm-hmm. They're just, you're a new face to them. They're going to get done with you and then they're going to go on to the next one, blah, blah, blah. And you know, I didn't honestly rehabilitate myself out of the rehab until I was 23. I got out of rehab when I was 19. I continued to do drugs for another, you know, four years, not as heavily, but off. No, actually as heavily. I overdosed on cocaine when I was 23. So it took a long time for me to create tons of value because just because I had learned to work hard when I was in rehab did not mean that I knew how to apply it after I got out of rehab or what to do because as soon as that was done, I went to college. As soon as co- I dropped out of college, because I was like, all I want to do is just compete. And I was on academic probation already. So I'm like, they're not letting me compete. They want me to study. They want me to be sober. Like there's just no real opportunity for me here. So I dropped out. Um, I started p- pursuing modeling for a while just because I had the opportunity to, but it was not really something that really suited me as a person. And then a couple of years later, I moved out to California with friends. And by the time I was 22, I had found sport again. I started going on all these websites. So you could start to see CrossFit popping up. It was now 2010, 2011. CrossFit was starting to get a little bit bigger. Spartan racing was getting bigger. Triathlon was getting bigger. Social media was starting to pick up. So it's easy to really see this stuff and get involved in it rather than like going down to the gas station and picking up, picking up like, you know, muscle pump 10,000 magazine. So you could see all this stuff coming out on the internet. So I had something that I was like, okay, that looks like it's interesting. Um, I had now become one of the best guys. I had now become one of the best guys in the world at obstacle course racing without even really trying. Like I was like, shit, I, I'm really great runner. I'm really strong from all this logging stuff let's see what we can do with it. And I showed up to a championship race against the two prior world champions, the 2013 world champion and the, or the 2012 world champion and the 2011 world champion. And I ran against them and I was shoulder to shoulder with them. And I only lost to the second place guy by like 30 seconds and the first place guy by three minutes in my heart. I would, I just overdosed on cocaine the weekend before and my heart was, sorry, you overdosed. that's like something you glossed over. Like you, you go over this a week. Do you say the weekend yes, before? Yes. The weekend before. Uh, Seems like there's two conflicting drives. To there. be totally honest, I didn't like go into like a hospital and have them like, you know, in the movie, like uh Pulp Fiction where they like stick an adre- uh, adrenal, uh, adrenaline needle in my heart. That didn't happen. But it was a response to the drugs that had never happened to me before in my entire lifetime where like my body had shut down and I was thumping really hard in my heart. I passed out. I woke back up. They put me in a shower. Um, I was freezing cold. We had the water all the way up. I then passed out again. I couldn't keep down any water. I was throwing up a ton. Then all of a sudden we went to a restaurant because they said I needed to get food and get out of the house. And I went into the bathroom. I passed out and I woke up and there was throw up and blood all over the floor. 
Um, it was just a bad day. Uh, it was bad. Was there a point that, or was there anything that shifted mentally around that point? Not really. I was in Miami. I'm guessing I was in you, Miami and I was supposed to be you. in California and I'd been lying to my parents. Um, you know, my dad had sponsored me for my first couple of races because I was like, dad, I think I can do this. I think I can become a professional runner. I just don't have the money. Can you help spot me? He goes, I'm going to cover for you for a couple. But after that, you're cut off and you're on your own. So he'd been covering me for a couple of races. And I took the couple of dollars that I did have and flew to Miami to go party with my friends. And then I took the money that I had left, which was nothing. And I changed my flight earlier because I was like, if I die in Miami and my fi- family finds out that I overdosed in cocaine in Miami without telling them, I'd be so fucked. Like, I just, I cannot do that. So I flew home early and I knew I had to race that following week. So I kind of like cleaned myself up. I was like, God damn, got to take a shower, get my shit together. And I went and raced that championship. And that was the first time I had ever raced against those guys. And I was like, bunch of pussies. I was like, I'll kick the shit out of you guys. So I came out to fault and was like, killing it. Absolutely killing it. And I was like, gosh, and I could feel like there was chest pains that I had never felt before. And I was like, there's something wrong. Like, I I think I'd probably stressed out my heart the week before. And I was like, there's something wrong in here. But I finished the race anyways. And I was so close to beating him. And I was like, Hunter, the only difference between you and first place is the fact that you're the only one who got high the weekend before. So at that point, I cleaned up. I was like, that's it. I thought we're going to do this. So then I was all in. From that point on, I don't really mess with the stuff. But uh, I took that moment of like recognizing what I could have and what I won't have because of the decisions I decided to make. So that's what happened. That's an important turning yep. point. So you then begin obstacle course racing on a more consistent basis, I'm guessing. What's driving you at that point? I didn't have a lot of other options, to be totally honest, but I did want to be the best. Necessity. I did want to be the best at something. I knew that I always could be. I didn't care enough about high school wrestling or Kyle, uh, or high school running to be the best, even though I had the talent to. I didn't care enough at college to get out of academic probation to be a better wrestler. So there was just like all these options where I didn't care. And I was like, why are you making that opportunity an excuse? Like, why, why, is, that even a, an, a, why is that even a chance to make the decision of not working hard instead? So I just cut that out. And I was like, I'll put more work in than everybody. I'll race harder than everybody. I'll show up to the races that I'm not good at and I'm still going to beat them. I'm going to show up to the races that I am good at and I'm going to fucking crush them. And that's how I'm going to live. I'm going to live with this chip on my shoulder of, you know, making them bleed if they want it. And it was good. From that point on, I got really good. Um, I'll admit I'll say I got a little bit softer in my older years just because things changed a little bit, but now I have that, you know, that taste in my mouth again, where I'm excited. What what do you mean? Things got a little bit softer. You know, honestly, like our sport does not make as much money as CrossFit does. Like, you know, I looked at like a sheet of paper, like Justin Madero's just off like rogue invitational and, um, and the CrossFit games made like $700,000. And T. Claire Toomey even more. I would have to race every single year in Spartan racing and obstacle course racing and high rocks. And I'd have to race and win pretty much everything for probably five to six years. Every single race that had like a big ticket on it to make that much money in one year. It was as much money as they do in one year. Mm. So I had to kind of start taking myself out of this position so that I could start to make income elsewhere because, you know, I know all my brothers, they make a tremendous amount of money. They're very successful. I was like, I could just go do what they do and be the best and just freaking have stacks of cash in this room right now. Uh, but I chose a sport that's not a very, you know, cash heavy sport. It's, it's a, you know, it's a, something that's a pleasurable experience for me. But as I was getting a little bit older, I didn't want to live. Like there were years that I was living on an air mattress in an empty house with furniture that was just made of stumps that we'd steal out of people's front yards. And, um, not that I, I scoff at those years. Those were the best years of my entire life, but I'm just saying, why was that? Why, why were they the best years of your life? It's just interesting, dude. Like when you have nothing to go home, like right now I have a cush couch and a 70 inch screen TV downstairs. We didn't have a TV at the time and we only had stumps and, and, uh, stumps and freaking air mattresses. Like, 
when I'm done with training, I come home and I lay down on the couch and watch some TV. We had nothing to do but to train. So we'd train. I'd run 90 minutes for two hours in the morning, eat food, go jump in the river, fuck around for a little bit, go to the, go to the gym, run around the lazy river backwards a bunch and stretch a little bit and then do a two or three hour bike ride in the afternoon. And that was like day in and day out, no rest days, seven days a week. Cause we didn't have anything else to do. We had nothing. We, we had no money to do anything. We had no opportunity to waste our time doing anything else. Like if you're going to sit out, sit around, you might as well fuck ride on a bicycle bicycle. You might as well run up to the top of that mountain. You've been looking at all day. That's all you had to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it's almost like an antidote to boredom, right? Like you, you can't like, if you're just going to sit there and be bored, then like you might as well go and do something. Yeah. Yeah. It was true. And now, Christ, I got a 600 horsepower BMW in my front yard. I could just say, hey, why don't I just hop in that thing and drive around fast for a while? That's a pretty nice way to spend the day. But, um, you know, now I've worked hard enough that I was, I'm afforded to have nice things. And it's, do you want to climb up the mountain? Like this morning I woke up, it was sunny out. And then all of a sudden the Arctic storm hit me. And I'll show you a video on my phone of just me getting crushed by a storm that was freezing. It literally went from like 50 degrees down to probably, I don't know. I don't know if you can see, but I can see literally Yeah, it, it went from absolutely sunny, perfect, beautiful day to be covered in snow. And I was like, fuck, that is crazy. But you know, I could just be sitting inside warm on the couch. So like, that's what I was trying to say. Um, you know, you're afforded different opportunities. So I had to navigate away from that, get my mind back. Okay. So, so now life is a little bit more comfortable. There's a bit more luxury there and maybe space and time and that kind of thing. What, how do you stay tough? How do you, how do you ensure that you don't lose that edge? You just got to hate losing. This year, I went and spent a month at a beach house with my family the month before my world championships over in Germany. And I've never lost that race ever in four years. I've never like I just I haven't lost since 2019. So 19 to 20 to 21. So three years. Sorry. And I lost. I lost. And I spent a month hanging out on the beach with my family, drinking wine, eating buttery lobster. And I hated it. Then two weeks later, over in the UK, I set the world record for doubles with my buddy. And I was like, and I didn't eat. You can ask Keith. I hung out with Keith and I didn't eat every single day until noon. I starved myself. I cut off like 15 pounds of fat within like three weeks. And I was just so angry at myself for having a fun summer. I'm just, it was stupid. I hate losing is my my answer. So you got to prioritize. And if you hate losing as much as I do, you'll find a reason to work hard. Yeah. You, you can see that. Like, I, I think it's equally loving winning and hating losing. They, they seem to be both drivers for you. Winning's not that much fun, man, to be honest. It's like, what are you going to do with it? I've won so many times. It doesn't change. You know, you get a paycheck, you stand on top of a podium for a second. Everyone drinks a bunch of beer at the end. Losing's way more exciting. Unintended. Yeah. So there's, there's almost like this trade-off, right? Like you, you can run from something or you can go towards yeah. something and it's clear what you're, you're kind of not, I, I don't want to say running from, cause it sounds too dramatic or too overblown, but there's definitely something you're getting, trying to get away from the, the, the hatred of, of losing. But is there something that you're really going towards? Is there like, this is the ideal version of me? This is the way, is it towards a flow state? Is it towards uh, enjoyment, meaning? Well, I will say, and I'm sure there's athletes that are listening to this that have been there before and been that version of themselves. And then there's the best, best athletes in the world that know exactly what I'm talking about. There is a place that I've hit a handful of times in my lifetime where you have so much, you're so fit that it is literally like my foot is to the floor gas pedal wise and I still can hold it. No problem. And that is a special feeling. And I only hit it maybe once every couple of years. That is a God. That's an awesome feeling. Um, 
And, you know, honestly, it's something for myself that I'm not necessarily running from. Like, I just want a certain thing. I just want it. And I, um, it's, it's kind of like this cup each, I can't fill it all with one thing. It's just little balls, marbles dropping in there. And eventually it's going to fill the whole thing up. Like if you looked at a gumball machine and each and every single one of those independently, a story, my cup's just not full yet. I'll know when it happens. Um, it's just not, I've got a couple of things that I can just feel that are on the horizon that are really important to me. And I'll know when it's full and I'll never like quit competing, but at the same time, I'll let go a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. What what was the process of events that got you to the CrossFit Games? I mean, it was random, actually. It was actually this kind of thing where like an X hit perfectly at a very weird time. I just competed in my world championship on June 7th, I think it was. Six weeks before that, I rolled my ankle and I tore like almost all of the ligaments on the outside of the right ankle and back behind the cuff of my, like towards my Achilles. And they told me I need to have surgery and walk in a boot. I told the doctors to F off. And I went and found a therapist that would work really hard with me on stabilizing the ankle. And I got it. And then the day before the championship, I rolled the ankle again. And I wrapped my ankle in so much tape and was taking about four Advil every, you know, 90 minutes, which you're not supposed to do. And I went and I won it. And my ankle was so messed up after that. I was like, I can't run anymore. So I'm just going to go. And I had just won this contest and Pat Vellner was there. Um, you know, a bunch of CrossFit Games guys were there. Uh, Jacob Hepner, Straith Horner, uh, Brooke Entz, like so many CrossFitters that had been to the games and actually kicked ass and been on the podium at the CrossFit Games. And I crushed all of them. And everyone was like, you're still not as fit as CrossFitters. And I was like, F you guys. I was like, this is such bullshit. I was like, I don't even understand how you guys think you're so badass. I'm going to just going to go and I'm going to do your stupid sport and I'm going to shut you all up. And out of nowhere, within like a couple months of that happening, like me making that decision, I ended up talking to Chris Hinshaw and Chris Hinshaw was like, you know, that there's an invitation clause in the contract of the CrossFit games this year where they're letting out a wild card. And I was like, what? So I'm very thankful to Chris Hinshaw. He tells me that. So I just started this campaign, get Hunter to the games. And I just started campaigning for it. I was like, I don't know how to actually get this done, but the fastest way I know how to get it done in my mindset was to tell everybody that that's my plan and get a bunch of people that are interested in it. And it just became this storyline. And I started traveling with fit aid to go meet all the best CrossFitters that I could get a hold of and work out with them and have a good time. And it was amazing. It was a lot, a lot of fun. I got to the CrossFit Games, had an absolutely awesome time. Probably should have spent more time walking on my hands. Um, you know, if I had to be totally honest, I don't feel like I got really the opportunity to show who I was as an athlete. Like the next workout was the ruck run. And then the beyond that was like a sled and muscle up thing. Like those are things that I consider myself to be one of the top dogs in the world at. And it was the first year they introduced that cut. I was like, fuck. So I kind of lost. Um, and I have like a bad taste in my mouth about it because I do, it'd be embarrassing. It'd be like being the fittest boxer in the entire world. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, you got sucker punched like the first or second round and just like knocked out. And you're like, fuck, I had so much more in me. Um, so I have that chip on my shoulder, but from an experience and arc of a story that I have in my life, it was one of the greater things I've ever done. I met so many cool people. I have to say the CrossFit games is more well orchestrated than anything I've ever participated in my life. I have to give my hats off to, even though I'm not a huge fan of Dave Castro, Dave Castro, congratulations. You're a superstar. Um, all the staff behind the scenes, the media, the people that are volunteers, they're just such a good streamlined, efficient company that I was very, very proud to be a part of. Is there a drive to go back? There is, dude, but not the way that I had to get there. I, I, I overtrained myself. I've over, overtrained myself doing a couple things. And that was one of the things I overtrained myself doing. And I still have a back injury to this day from doing it. Not that I blame CrossFit, I blame myself. I just would have to do it so differently. And I just don't know how to really put that together without completely changing my life. 
Yeah, something would have to give. There'd be like a, a space that you'd have to create for it. Oh, 100%. I mean, if you want to be the greatest at anything, like right now, if you could see out of my office, I'm looking straight up. I'm only a quarter mile from the best trailhead in Boulder. And I, I lived across the street from here when I was training for the CrossFit Games. And I lived in my garage that was only a one bay car garage. So it could only fit one car in it. And I was in there four hours every single day. And I looked up at the mountains and I was like, why am I living in the mountains, looking at them and training in a garage every day? And like some of my closer friends, like Jacob Hepner, I just watched the way he trained year after year. Like, dude, you just live in garages. That's all you do. Just live in a garage. And I'm, I'm honestly not that kind of athlete. Like I told you about my youth, we would bike from here to there. We'd climb up to the top of this tree. We would just do stuff that was what I consider to be a really fulfilling life of athletic endeavors. Um, And that's where I I have this fine line that I don't know if I'm ready to cross it again to prepare for it. Our sports that we're doing right now, like high rocks is just, it's, it's like 50% of the stuff you need to be ready for the CrossFit games, but the other 50% of it, you get to be out in the mountains. Yeah. That's pretty freaking fun. Um, And there's a lot of endeavors. Like one of those things I told you about to like kind of fill my cup up before I'm done is I'm trying to set the world record for the fastest marathon over 200 pounds. I want to set a couple other records. What's the record at the moment? 237. It's pretty good. Pretty good time. Yeah. Where are you now with that? I was just under 240, I believe, for my training that I was putting into it. Uh, And then I got piriformis syndrome, which is like the lamest I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's just, it's so lame. It's like, not, I wish it like, I had like someone had like a dog had bit half my leg off or something, or I could really look at it and be like, oh, that's why I can't run. But it's just this little nagging thing. And now I'm better. Like I just tore through the mountains and I was like, oh, I can start to feel my legs coming back. Um, so it will probably be the same cycle that I tried to do last year, but I'm going to do it differently. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sweet. Those uh, small injuries are very annoying. I tore, oh, I had a, a pulley injury on my finger and then it's like, it got in the way of everything and it's it's ridiculous. One thing I want to touch on is when you turned up at the CrossFit Games or on the CrossFit scene, you were pretty controversial and it seemed like you, if you, if you're going to make a snap comparison, it was like you're pulling the fire alarm again. It was like you're back in that situation. It's like, right, I'm I'm going to piss a few people off, or like this is going to be funny, and like it's if or this is going to be something that's going to give me a kick, and people are going to laugh about it. What? Why do you think it was so controversial? Small-minded people. What I did has nothing to do with their lives, but they made it all about their lives. If you get what I'm trying to say, like, did me coming to the CrossFit Games change your life at all? Probably not. Did my, me coming to the CrossFit Games change anybody's life? No, it didn't. There's probably like one person that got cut from the first round into the second round because of me. Sorry about that, buddy. Um, but other than that, um, me coming to the Games actually didn't change anything. Like if you think about it, I didn't get any more social media coverage than anybody else did. CrossFit deleted their social media account that year. Mm. I didn't get paid anything that anybody else would have gotten paid. Um, like I didn't really do anything. I don't understand why they got so stirred up. It was very interesting. Um, it was a very weird experience to see how razzled everybody was about it. But for me, my life didn't change. I just started training differently and I hired different coaches and I went to different contests. I didn't go to the contests that I normally went to. Uh, so I don't really understand why they got so upset because a lot of those people that were really upset with me talk to me now regularly and are very kind to me. But in the beginning, they were freaking crazy about it. What's the biggest challenge you face in fitness? Probably my friend, Ryan Atkins. (laughs) Why? Well, it's just one of those kind of things that if I don't train the way that I've been talking about this whole time, like there's a, there's a level of training where, you know, that you're ready and there's a level of training that you can show up and pretty much beat everybody else, except for the guy who knows that he's ready. And he always ends up being the guy who's ready. Like I've just competed against him for so many years where I've gotten him and he's gotten me and he's the only person who consistently gets me. Okay. How'd you prepare for competing against him? Probably wouldn't be talking to you right now if you get what I'm trying to say. Go on. Go on. Yeah. Tell me more. I wouldn't be wasting my time. Not that I'm wasting my time now, but I wouldn't be wasting my time talking about working out. I'd be in the mountains running right now. 
it's just, it's, it's hours a day. You know, that same book that I was just telling you about that cross country ski guy. I mean, there's sessions, sessions to be in a certain kind of cardiovascular shape needs about 22 to 32 hours of volume a week. And you can't just pick those hours up sporadically. Like you need to be dedicated. You need to be a student of it. You need to be scheduled and methodical. So that's it. When you think of success, who springs to mind? Teddy Roosevelt. Why? It's just a man who did it all. He never really sat there and thought about it. He just did it. You know, ran for a president a third time, didn't become the president. Then all of a sudden went and conquered uh, one of like the hardest unknown river, uncharted rivers in the entire world down in the, um, in the rainforests of Brazil wanted to be a cowboy, wasn't a cowboy. He was born in New York city. So he just went out and hung out with cowboys out West, you know, wanted to be a naturalist, wanted to learn more about animals rather than paying for people to teach him. He just went out and learned himself. That's a true person getting shit done, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do for your mental health on a regular basis? I read. Yeah. What, what kind of stuff? Like what you obviously biographies, I'm guessing, uh, from the way you just list out Teddy Roosevelt stuff. What else? I listen to this one book all the time. Here we all are by, uh, Ram Dass. I have to listen to that every once in a while. So you can have really just, uh, an understanding of identity crisis. Cause like you right now believe in who you are and what you're doing and you put so much value into that microphone and the time and your business and everything like that. And if I had taken it all away from you, what would you really be? And that's been very helpful because sometimes you get so caught up in things, you, you identify with something more than anything else and it can become detrimental to your health or anything. So it's taught me to just be able to separate myself from things that are not myself that I involve myself in. That's a hugely valuable lesson. <laughs> Probably something that a few psychedelics in your youth prepared you for as well. Loss of self and loss of identity. Um, and then Ram Dass would definitely fit in that box yeah, as well. And then finally, what's your greatest achievement in, in fitness? Actually, let's, let's take it out of fitness. What's your greatest achievement? I made it. I didn't fail. I think all those teachers and people in rehab and tops that had rested me and judges that I stood in front of were convinced that I had a, a jail cell with my name on it and I made it. And not only am I free, but I have more freedom than I think all of them do. And that's a pretty good life. That's a great place to end a podcast. Where can people follow you, find out about you? Like, I see you've got training programs on your website. Like, tell us more about where to find you. My name's Hunter McIntyre. Type that in pretty much anywhere. You'll probably find something. Um, you know, if you're trying to learn more about what I do throughout the year, that's probably through Instagram. It's the easiest way to track what we're doing. Um, we usually do bigger projects on YouTube and stuff, which is fun. Um, if you want to learn how to get in pretty wild shape, you come to our company, Hunter's Academy of Strength House Training. Um, if you want to learn about the supplements that I build personally, um, it's called Builder and that's Builder Nutrition. That's my supplement company. And, uh, you know, I'm a pretty easy guy to get a hold of. I try to do everything I can to really support the community that supports me. So if I can ever help you out, just reach out. Awesome. That is a sweet place to end. Thank you for coming on the show, dude. I'm Tom Foxley. Thank you for listening to the Limitless Athlete Podcast. Following this episode, we will be releasing the debrief, a summary of the wisdom within this conversation and practical steps to applying it in order to enhance your own mindset. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast so you can start growing in the mindset of a limitless athlete. If you're on iTunes, a five-star review and some kind words are super helpful as well. Also, Spotify now do reviews for some people, so it'd be awesome if you could review us there too. For further mindset training resources and tools, head to MindsetRx.com or find us on Instagram by searching for MindsetRx. That's MindsetRxD. 
Next week, I actually don't know who we're going to be speaking to yet. Our schedule hasn't quite lined up, so you're going to get a mystery guest. But I'll see you next week regardless.